Like most of us, I've worked under dozens of bosses over the years. Some are micromanagers, some are completely hands-off, some are concerned with results while others are more concerned with the remittance of timesheets and making sure no one leaves at 4.48 and cheats the company out of 12 minutes of work time. But I've never had a boss quite like Dr. Karen Cohen at the CPA. She has been masterful in my three years here at ensuring every employee has what they need to succeed while allowing us all to carve out our own roles that best suit our strengths. As Karen retires, we are taking this episode to look back on the astonishing career of the CEO of the Canadian Psychological Association. My name's Eric, I'm the communications person at the CPA, and this is Mindful. Over the past 15 years, Dr. Karen Cohen has led the Canadian Psychological Association and the profession of psychology in Canada into new areas of focus, a remarkable growth and increased presence at decision-making tables, and she has expanded the public's knowledge about what it is psychologists do. She's one of my three direct bosses at the CPA, or, uh, as she puts it, as leader of a membership organization, one of 7,000 bosses. Now, it sounds like a line out of The Simpsons, because it actually was a line used in The Simpsons, but I do firmly believe that she believes every word of it. I'll talk to her about that and a lot more as we speak with Dr. Karen Cohen on the occasion of her retirement. How long have you been CEO <laughs> of the CPA? Right, good question. I actually was hoping you were going to ask me a little bit how... Uh how it is that I came to this work. Um, so at, well, at, at for how got, long? I know you got there through the registrar's office, I believe. So let me let me just, I'm going to backtrack it just a tiny little bit, Eric, just because yeah. everyone, one of the questions I know I often get is like, how did you ever end up doing this kind of work as a psychologist? For sure, it was not, you know, the career path we most think of, for sure. So my PhD was in clinical psychology. I did a postdoc in neuropsych and rehabilitation and really worked as a clinician for a good first third of my career. But during that time, you're right, I worked part-time as the accreditation registrar. In those days, I think it was a half a day a week, if you could imagine, hardly. Uh, hardly enough now, given the number of accredited programs we have. And then around 2000, 2001, CPA took the decision to expand its human resource a little bit, and I became the associate executive director. So I did accreditation and then some sort of associate kinds of duties. And then after John's service left, would have been 2007, I um, applied and competed for the job as its ED. And then a couple years after that, they changed my title to the CEO. So all to say, by the time I retire in March, it will have been 15 years as the CEO. Is that a hotly contested job? Like when you applied for it, did you have to run attack ads against your opponents? Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> How, how how did that come about or do you just submit a resume or is it like when people apply for a tenured position at a university, a series of interviews and weeks long intensive process? Well, they did post and advertise the job. I was interviewed along with a number of other candidates. I'm not sure exactly how many other candidates there were. I believe... I don't actually recall how many interviews there were. It was with a, a series of board members. And um, yeah, and I ended up with it. I ended up with it. How steep is the learning curve? I'm wondering. When you first start, right, you're going from somebody who might advocate on their own behalf to certain issues that are important to you to issues that are important to all psychologists across Canada 
and to Canadians in general, right? Mental health and that sort of thing. Is that a really steep curve or is it just an expansion of what you were already doing? Well, you know, so here's the interesting thing. I mean, I know the CEOs of many different health professional associations and, and uh, scientific societies, learned societies. And I really don't think there's a single profile for an excellent CEO. I think they come to it with overlapping, but also kind of unique skill sets. In some associations, the CEO is a member of the profession they're leading. In others, they're more of a, a career CEO that their expertise is managing not-for-profit associations. So I don't think there's a single profile. I think it depends on who gets hired, their skill set. And then you sort of staff around that, right? So, you know, I don't think all the sort of characteristics that are or skills that are important in a CEO necessarily are going to look the same from one to the other. Advocacy was certainly a big part of what I did. I, I was a practitioner before coming to the role. I understood the health landscape, the health system landscape, issues around mental disorders, mental problems, treatment services and intervention. And I kind of took on the practice advocacy, but I'm joined. We have a director of policy and public affairs. Glenn does a tremendous amount of advocacy as well. Lisa sort of leads up more of our science advocacy. So is it, it is not typically though, to your question, training in advocacy is not typically something that graduate schools give you. Right. And so it is something that you learn. Sometimes you learn on the job. You can certainly do training in leadership and advocacy. CPA has provided some to its members. We have our very important psychologist, psychology researcher program, which is basically an advocacy group through which Glenn sort of reaches out to the folks interested in talking to government. And we give them lots of tools and resources on how to do so. So there's certainly a lot you can learn and know coming to this work, but it, it may not be things you're going to learn traditionally through graduate school. Now that we have our advocacy toolkit and Glenn's helped build that and we're able to reach out to psychologists in that way, right? you mentioned uh, that you understood the landscape when you first came into this role. I'm wondering now, how is that landscape different 15 years later than it was uh, when you first took on the role in 2007? I think what's really different now than 15 years ago is I think increasingly psychology has a seat at a lot of public and stakeholder tables that we didn't before. I think our input and opinion is routinely sought by government. Our leadership on health and well-being is really pretty well acknowledged by other health professions. I'm not saying it wasn't 15 years ago, but I think it, it, ha it happens more and more. I think if you were to add up the number of presentations we've made to standing committees of the House of Commons and the Senate, you would see a, an increase um, certainly over the years. So I think we're we're more we have a more we're a more familiar guest at the table, shall we say, where those matters are being discussed. I think the other really important thing is that mental health and increasingly the importance of psychological science to public policy has also changed. It's now largely being recognized. You hear people talking about mental health issues a lot, uh, mental health needs, services and supports, how health systems uh, either do or don't meet those needs. One of the messages we've been trying to give in more recent years, it's not just about mental health and illness, but how important human behavior is to public policy. So things like in a pandemic, people deciding to get vaccines and socially distance and wear masks, it's all about human behavior. So understanding behavioral science when you're creating that policy is important. Same for climate change. You want people to drive their cars less, compost, think about where they throw things out. Again, human behavior. So we've really uh, been trying to promote that message. I think what's also changed over the past 15 years is that 
the landscape of regulated health professions. So, and that's a good thing. The more accountable healthcare practitioners there are to address people's mental health needs, that enhances access, and that's a good thing. But mental health, although there's lots more, lots more recognition about how important it is, I'm, I've often said it's something that's understood broadly but not deeply. So sometimes public conversations, even among learned stakeholders, treat mental health as if it's all the same thing, right? We had right. a mental health commission. We would never have a physical health commission. It would be ridiculous. But yet somehow we can talk about mental health as if it's all the same, which in fact it's not. The needs of a, of a person with postpartum depression or anxiety or PTSD are different. And similarly, we talk about all the disorders as, as the same as if all the interventions or services and supports are the same too. Also not true. Certain approaches and certain things work better with certain kinds of problems. So we have a little ways to go there. I think the the other change, I'm going to go further back than 15 years of being CEO, but in the course of my career is that when I graduated, many of my graduate student colleagues went on to work in the public sector. They worked in hospitals and schools and correctional facilities. And I think increasingly now, psychologists are going to work in private practice. They have more control over their workload. They can do the work that they want. There's people needing their services, all good things. The downside to becoming a more private practice-oriented profession, of course, is that is access to Canadians because those services are not as well covered as when the psychologist who's salaried in a public institution, there's no charge for that service, whereas there is in private practice. But the other thing is, is that we're not at the decision tables. So if we're not in the public sector, we're also not at the public sector tables where policy and program is being discussed. And so we have less opportunity to shape those um, discussions. On the research and education side, you know, there are issues we were championing 15 years ago. I wish I could tell you we weren't still championing, or we are. So one of the things way back when, when the Canadian Institute's Health Research took over from Medical Research Canada, you know, the hope and the mandate was that they were going to acknowledge the biopsychosocial nature and importance of health research. And I think it still tends to be, at least according to some, more biomedically focused rather than including the psychosocial dimensions to health. And I think that's really an important thing because I was trained as a health and rehab psychologist, and you could pick almost any chronic illness, and it's really about behavior. How well you live with a chronic illness is about behavior. Do you take right. your medications? Do you have the supports? Are you managing your mood? Is the environment accommodating your mobility or uh, needs? All of those things. So I can't underscore enough how important that is. And I think another thing that's changed is we're hearing more about it now, the increasing use of contract rather than tenured tenure track professors. I know our scientific affairs committee is developing a paper on that very topic. Contracts um, you certainly don't create the kind of space and incentive for people with doc doctorates to go into uh, academia. The last thing I'll say in terms of changes is also what's happened over the past, might even be longer than 15 years, is the end of mandatory retirement. And so that's changed what the profession looks like and what, you know, who's in positions when they leave positions, who who takes on new positions, makes planning harder. Now, I'm not I'm not advocating for mandatory retirement at all, but I'm saying that when retirements were known, planning around that is different in terms of needs and supply and demand when it wasn't. Now we're talking about your retirement. Yes. And I wanted to call in guest experts to tell me <laughs> uh, about work-life balance. Oh, you're hilarious. That's true. You know. Okay, girls. <laughs> Let us know. 
Madison, you were first on the call. And I just want to know, uh, from your perspective, over the last 15 years, you were probably very, very young when your mom became the CEO of the CPA. What did you think that meant? I don't know if I consciously like had a definition of what her job or what being a CEO meant when she started to be the CEO, if that makes sense. But I did soon come to realize, like as I got a bit older and she started to talk to me a bit more about her work, that like it's it's a lot of juggling. And we like to kind of joke around in the family that mom has always been the fixer. And I think she also does that both at work and at home. So if you got a problem, mom's the person to talk to. But I, I think it's it was definitely inspiring growing up, especially as like a young woman trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And her and my father are both the inspiration for I went to graduate school. But to see her as a CEO, like being incredibly successful, gave me a lot of motivation. Is it intimidating? I mean, to have I'm intimidated when I walk into Karen's office because I feel like you know, I'm speaking to somebody with a vast wealth of expertise beyond my own. Is it intimidating to have to live up to that standard? Sydney, uh, you know, as you go through life, do you have to, you know, are you a little bit worried that uh, your mom casts a long shadow? I think similar talk track, and I love how she's taking a water break for this one, but she instilled that exactly to your point intimidating but now there's like no other option she is like the standard in our eyes of like what success looks like all around and I think our dad did a really good job of making sure we knew that as well he was her biggest cheerleader and the first person to to let us know that she's the smartest person in the room I feel that all the time that Karen is the smartest person in the room and we all defer uh, to her. Uh, Maybe if I'm I'm in the room by myself. Okay. I'll give you that. (laughs) Technically you are are in the room by yourself right now. That's true. That's true. But I imagine that, you know, as family members, you, you feel a little more licensed to push back. What did that look like when you were kids? Oh, I'm going to let you take this one, Sid. I was going to say, me and Maddie have, polar opposite approaches I think I got the the feistiness and Maddie's more you know calculated so um what do you always say mom we're like different pieces of you and dad um just in two very opposite human beings I unfortunately and I feel terrible I never was able to meet your dad uh and unfortunately he died just after Mm -hmm. I got to the CPA and before COVID began and you know What's that been like? I mean, for Karen, I know that was so hard for you, and it obviously had to be hard for Madison and Sydney as well. I, a terrible time over the last couple of years, but you know, how have you guys coped with that? We're still coping, I would say. Huge kudos to you, Mom. Um, yeah, doing your job every single day, remembering all the the words of advice he gave us. So I think the the answer to that is ongoing work in progress. <laughs> I think if anything, though, just to add, it it kind of brought us three closer together. And and that might be a factor of all of the things that have happened in the past two years. I don't know. Has COVID been going on for two years? Is it three years now? I don't know. Almost three. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like this entire series of events, I think, has brought the three of us a lot closer in terms of just like day-to-day life, life 
interactions, which I love. And I would just add, I'd agree with with both what Madison and, and Sydney had to say. Keith, Keith really was, um, I don't want to get emotional here, but he really was my biggest cheerleader. He was really the quintessential partner, I have to say. I feel blessed we had the years that we did. And, um, you know, it, it's hard to face uh, retirement without him, frankly, because I, I sort of feel like we missed the dessert off the meal course, right? The, the time when we were to go off and sort of enjoy the, you know, the, the fruits of our labors. But um, it's a journey. I now understand grief a lot better than I ever did before. I think it's something you carry with you rather than something you get over. And the way that I think about it very visually is I, I sort of picture this this old cart in a field. And with time, the old cart, the, a flower blooms, the birds perch on it. So the grief is still there, but positive things stand beside it. And uh, my two big positive things, frankly, are Madison and Sydney and how our relationship has evolved. Sydney, when you were growing up, how did you understand psychology? I, like, I remember, you know, my dad would tell me what he did for a living. And I misunderstood a hundred percent of what he was explaining. He worked at Stats Canada in the agriculture division. And I thought he physically went out to a field and counted sheep and then wrote down the number <laughs> and then sent that into the government. And that was his job. Like, what did you think your mom's job was when you were a kid? That's a good question. Obviously psychology is not the easiest kind of field to grasp when you're, when you're little, but I do remember when she took over for CEO, I was, I just thought that was so cool. She was this big boss. I used to call you what mom, the big poncho. I actually thought it was called poncho, not honcho. And it's kind of been a, a running joke till today, but going back to that first answer, it's kind of why the Madison and I have such a high standard for ourselves and where we're going to take our careers and I would unequivocally attribute that to to my mom. That's great. I'm going to make that the title of this episode when yeah. we publish it. The poncho <laughs> says goodbye. Uh, you know. <laughs> well, the kids used to say to me, "But mom, you're the boss," and I'd go, "I have seven thousand bosses." You know, there's this perception that when you're the CEO, obviously you're the boss, and that's not really true. We are a member service organization, and you know, early on. When I was deciding whether to go this route to be the CEO, I talked to a mentor of mine and he said, you know, it's important work and advocacy is very important, but do you want to be a handmaiden to the profession is what he said to me. Because I, and, and I, I, you know, have there been times when I felt like a handmaiden? Maybe. But it has been a life of service. It really is. You know, CPA and a not-for-profit organization can't just reflect the views and of its leaders, it has to reflect uh, the views and needs of its membership. That was spoken like a true politician. You know, <laughs> I have 38 million boxes. You know? but is that but the next step? Is that where you're going in retirement? Are you going to get into municipal Am I going to get into politics? Mayor? I, I have a few sort of ideas in the queue, none, none fully formed yet. So I won't give you the inventory list, but more than one or two people have suggested that public life might be the life for me, but mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure yet. Still to be determined. Eh? Still to be determined. T yeah, TBD. One of the reasons I wanted Sydney and Madison here was because you know, in addition to representing 7,000 psychologists across Canada, right, you're also the boss of us here at the office. And you've, for a long time, especially since COVID started, uh, been talking to us about work-life balance and making sure that it's proper uh, for all of us and that we're all doing well with that. And so I wanted to talk about your work-life balance 
Uh, you <laughs> delayed this meeting by half an hour today, and I believe it's because Madison was late dropping off her cat. Am I not am I right? You're absolutely right. It was because I wanted to say goodbye to Madison before she headed off to Australia, and I wanted to eat lunch. That So I needed that half an hour for those two things. Has that always been a thing? I, have you always uh, been able to maintain that balance well over the course of 15 years as a CEO? Well, yeah, yeah that's a really interesting question. When Keith was alive, we used to joke that on my, my headstone, it should say just one more thing. I'm the person who thinks there's always time for just one more thing. You know, I, I don't know. I think as a parent, no matter what jobs or roles you do, you always wonder if you did enough or you did enough of the right things. So I'd be lying if I told you that, you know, there haven't been moments when I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, I'm working too much or I wasn't there enough. Um, I, I tried my best. I think I think um, certainly our girls had a real presence of both their parents in the home. But yeah, there were times, uh, there have been times over 15 years when I probably worked more than I should have. That's probably true. A few too many aftercare programs. <laughs> yes, yes, you guys have been, <laughs> you guys have been to every summer, every day summer camp known to Ottawa and, and the surrounds, I yeah. think. I think you play a game about that. You sent me to a clown camp once that lasted. Yeah. And huh. I was like, come pick me up right now. <laughs> Wait, you went to a clown camp and didn't He's enjoy fine. it? I know. I guess I'm the I'm the guess. <laughs> yeah, that's on me then. What does that entail? Or were you not there long enough to find it, even, like balloon animals and lunch? To lunch, Eric. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Madison, what's the worst camp you went to? <laughs> oh, uh, Okay, well, this one isn't that bad, but it wasn't the best experience. I did a robotics camp once, and it was quite fun, but I was the only girl, and that was really hard. So mom let me come home on the days we went swimming because I didn't feel super comfortable. So, like, the camp and the what it was was really interesting, but mom definitely let me, like, move the schedule around so that, you know, I was comfy, which I think is important. So not quite as dramatic as the clown camp, though. Right. I will confess, though, one of my, my worst balance moments wasn't when I was working for CPA. It was actually while I was working for the hospital. I would, I think it was before you were even born, said Maddie. So Maddie would have been little and I would take her to daycare and then I'd go off to the hospital to work. Well, I forgot oh, to go to the daycare and I was pretty close to work when I realized Maddie was asleep in the car seat. So I hadn't left her in the car or anything <laughs> like that. But I'd forgotten. I, I didn't take the exit to take her to the daycare and she almost ended up. Uh, doing a shift with me at the hospital. So, and that, so that was a work-life balance moment, I guess. Sydney, what is it you're doing now? And then Madison, really quickly, what are you doing uh, now as well? I went the complete opposite direction of both my parents. I'm in cybersecurity sales, but definitely have a, a mom's mindset for, for sure. Nice. And Maddie? Um, I just finished my PhD in biomedical engineering and I'm currently a software engineering consultant for a wearable tech company. You were saying that one of the things that people would say about you is that it was all one more thing, like Columbo, right? Uh, just, just one more thing. And uh, Lisa sent me a note and said that if she were going to pick one thing that immediately came to mind about you, it's I, I have, have an idea. idea. <laughs> Right. And uh, so you're always walking into her office with a great idea and it leads to something terrific. 
what have been some of the best ideas that you've had over the 15 years? Like what are um, the highlights of of the career? If, if I look back and, and try to think about, you know, what are the things that I've been proud of? I really think we've... Um, we have a much bigger advocacy footprint than we did before. I think back in the day, you know, we might have had a advocacy meeting once or twice a year on the Hill, but we've made many, many more opportunities. And I think we've actually had a hand in actually shaping Canadian legislation. I'm not sure a lot of psychologists realize that. So I'll, I'll give you some examples. Mm. So really the proudest advocacy moment for me, and I, I've said this to some folks, but not, never, in, a, never in, a, to, to, in an article necessarily or a grand scope, is that when Canada was debating same-sex marriage, of course, they struck a committee a House of Commons committee. And I was in Vancouver at the time at some psychology meeting or another, and the deputy CEO called me back and said, we have to present before committee because uh, released into uh, the media was this feeling advanced by some that somehow if you had parents of the same gender, it would do damage to the development of children. Right. And we were able very quickly, that's our wheelhouse, to look at the literature that looks at identity and, and development in kids and quickly conclude that that was not, in fact, the case, that uh, if the children of same-sex parents had uh, any challenge at all, it was how so society embraced them uh, rather than the actual orientation of their parents. And so I was able to go to this House of Commons committee and advance that view of the, uh, the literature. And when I was done, two of the MPs stood up and clapped. And that probably was one of my proudest moments. There were people on that committee advancing completely opposite view. But I was very proud of that. And I think that for me embodied the best of what we can do as researchers and practitioners is lend what we know to make good public policy. So that was no doubt a highlight. But we've changed legislation in additional ways. Another uh, example is um, medical assistance in dying. When that legislation was being proposed, as is usually the case, when you get invitations from House of Commons committees, sometimes you just have hours to present. They might say, and, you know, we need you in 48 hours to present at such and such a time. And you've got to bring a brief together. So we did submit a brief and we, that had a series of recommendations. But one of them was one of the things when they were developing that legislation, of course, if they were going to make it legal to participate in an end of life decision for a patient, there needed to be exemptions from the criminal code because otherwise it's it's murder or counseling to commit murder. And so while they got the piece that, of course, you know, the physicians and nurses who participate in end of life decisions need an exemption, what we were able to say is that you need to exempt folks like psychologists as well, because they may talk to patients about their concerns and ideas about end of life decisions. And the criminal code finds it illegal to aid in a better suicide. So because of that presentation, we are actually named in the made legislation, psychologists being exempt from the criminal code if they engage in those kinds of conversations with people trying to decide what their end of life days will, will look like. And then a third example is uh, I sat for a few years in the early 2000s and then just finished another term now on the Disability Advisory Committee to the Minister of Revenue. And we uh, did a lot of work on how you assess eligibility for people with disabilities related to mental disorders. And as a result of the series of recommendations we made, those uh, changes to eligibility are enshrined in legislation. So those are things I'm really, really proud of on the big, on the big right. scale. 
Um, you mentioned the pro bono. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm also really proud, Eric, of Synopsis. I just love Synopsis. It used to be, it was a member-facing publication. Committee chairs would report, and that's important information for members to know what each others are doing. But what we've done with Synopsis, and I think actually way back when it was a suggestion of a past president, that we theme them and we get guest editors. And the way we theme them, though, is, and I guess that was the part that, you know, that was my contribution in terms of idea, is that it be themed around the things that's keeping society up at night. So whether it's climate change or health system change or um, psychology in schools or human rights and social justice, it's an opportunity for psychologists to write in a very accessible way, not just for each other, but for the public, for government, for funders, for decision makers, what does the science and practice of psychology have to say about these really important societal issues? So I'm, I'm really proud of that too. And I, I'm going to add, I'm also really proud of CPA staff. I really, really am. We have a um, really outstanding team of skilled and accomplished uh, people, and, and, and CPA owes its success to our team together. Despite the challenges of the last few years on everyone, our membership grows each year. It's the highest in our history, and I, I think that's because of the great team we have working for CPA. It's definitely a great team. And I agree with you on synopsis. I love synopsis. I love reading synopsis. I'm not even a psychologist, and I find it very informative and interesting. I'm wondering, though, how difficult it is to get psychologists to write in an accessible way. For them. <laughs> right? is, yeah. is that something that you've had to, you know, go back and forth with people on and say, you know, I, you can't use so many acronyms? We do. Um, I think, you know, that's a really, really important thing. And that really interfaces, too, with the advocacy discussion, because as psychologists, we know how to talk to each other and we know how to talk to other health providers and other scientists. But we don't really learn in graduate school how to talk to the public right? or, or how to talk to government, how to talk to funders. So it really is a learned skill. Not everyone has it. And so editing a synopsis, it requires a great deal of tact. Um, we do have a managing editor, in fact, uh, and this topic sometimes comes up in interviews. How do you respectfully um, shape an article? And sometimes we get submissions, they look like they're journal submissions. In fact, I think sometimes they might have been at one point journal submissions in the way they're formatted. And so you know, it is a real process of diplomacy to try and um, help uh, them revise it in a way that it meets the synopsis purpose, which is a very accessible, plain language, four to nine hundred words rendition of the work. Yeah. How long has synopsis been going now? Uh, was it there before you got yeah. there and you shaped it the way it is today? Yeah, it. Uh, I think it was called Psychology Highlights before it became Synopsis. And if memory serves, I think it was a member. Uh, there was a member little competition to pick a new name for it. Um, and but I think that the shaping of it into a more public facing document uh, would have been in the last five to ten years, probably ten years actually. And and this year we decided to carve off a digital publication that I think you're going to participate in bringing together, Eric. Yes. And that's going to be the member-facing piece. So, you know, what's happening in my department or, you know, maybe some um, individual spotlights on careers or uh, that kind of thing, meet proceedings from meetings, and, and we'll have that as a separate digital publication so that, you know, members still get to keep on top of what each other are doing. Terrific. 
And I'm looking forward to participating in that when it uh, when it begins. Those are some of the highlights. I would also add uh, conversion therapy, the recent ban on right. conversion therapy uh, that the CPA was a big part of advocating for that and, uh, you know, got that done. I think that's a big highlight, too. Now, sure. any regrets, like mm-hmm. anything that you really wanted to get done in your time as CEO that you just weren't able to do? Yeah. You know, advocacy is fast and slow. And what I mean by that is sometimes things can turn very quickly on a dime because of who's in a decision maker role. And sometimes you could be plodding away on the same message, which I think to some extent we have for science and practice. For practice, it's been access to psychological services, funding for psychological services. That's been a a very consistent message over 15 years. And for science, it's been the funding for science. Those have been certainly two venerable messages. And I might have hoped, I think we're on the brink of achieving parity between health coverage for mental and physical problems right now, but we're, we're not there yet. So that might be one. And I think while societies and Canadians understand how important uh, mental health is to a much greater extent they did uh, 15 years ago, we still don't have parity. We still don't really recognize either in science funding or in health practice the importance of the the, um, the psychosocial aspects of health, I think I, I might have hoped would be further along. I'm concerned about new graduates looking for academic careers, having uh, challenges, wrestling with contract positions, which don't give them the incentives and supports they need. Um, and uh, in, in, in private practice, having become perhaps more of a private practice profession in many ways, um, it, it concerns me what impact that has on accessibility and the opportunity to contribute to public policy. So, yeah, um, advocacy is fast and slow. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. For sure. And, you know, as you said, psychologists don't really have training in advocacy. Now, I want to do something here where uh, I got a few people to say a few things. So I want Aww. you to be able to respond to a few of those. So <laughs> okay. Ian Nicholson told yes. me that, uh, you know, he had the good fortune to work with you when you were part-time as the registrar for the accreditation panel. Uh, but what struck him over the many years is your ongoing and deep concern for how training affects the future of the profession, right? Wanting to ensure that the future is as strong as possible. And so, I'm wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about that, right? The training that psychologists receive and how that affects the future of the profession. Yeah, I really think we have a responsibility, whether we're educators or researchers or practitioners, to address the problems people in society face. And so I think there are some real sentinel areas right now. Um, that society needs our help on, the needs of an aging population, for example, um, the impacts and, and determinants of climate change, how to cope with the pandemic. There are uh, health psychology. Um, these are all things that I think in our training we need to learn something about. Now, it's impo- graduate school would take 20 years if we you know, graduated being experts in all of these areas. But I do think we have re- programs have a responsibility to look to their patient populations, to look to the needs that patients bring to them and try to align those with what we, we train psychologists to do. Now, obviously, every psychologist needs to exercise their own choice. I want to work with this kind of person or this kind of population, of course. But I think we we also have a responsibility to be responsive. And 
sometimes we need to remind ourselves about that. For sure. Now, you mentioned, you know, editing synopsis requires a certain level of diplomacy when you're uh, discussing the way that something is going to be presented. I imagine that when you're speaking to political committees and that sort of thing, that requires a good deal of diplomacy as well. Wolfgang Linden, he told me that he really appreciated your juggling skills, right? The ability to provide strong leadership while also trusting others enough to delegate without needing to micromanage, right? Keeping current programs running while on the lookout for promising new initiatives. Uh, but the main thing that he said, you were able to do all of that while behaving like a diplomat. And I'm mm -hmm. wondering if you can describe to me what behaving like a diplomat means and how important diplomacy is in, in the position that you have. I think it's, you know, having um, first and foremost, I think, you know, conducting yourself with with respect and with kindness to hear what people have to say is critical. It's critical to any job. I think it's really critical to this job. And you, you know, being able to, you know, obviously there's frustrating and challenging times when what's going on inside your head may not be the things you want to be heard outside of your head. So nobody's, uh, nobody's superhuman. But I, I think for me, um, what's been exceptionally important in dealing with people, and maybe that's what's perceived as diplomatic, I'm not sure, is I work very hard to try to see a problem from all sides. And so even if I'm working with someone I disagree with, I, I just work very hard to hear what they're saying and to see it the way they're seeing it. Because I really do believe that when you can account for all those perspectives, we'll end up in a better place when trying to, when trying to solve that particular problem. I really believe that. I think that's uh, excellent advice for all of us, uh, <laughs> you know, to be able to look at every side of a problem. Okay, this is the last one, and I want to close on this one. Uh, Heather McIntosh, you've been a leader in the field, a mentor to many, an inspirational advocate for mental health in Canada. And she says she's learned so much from you about what it means to be a, a psychologist, a scientist, a practitioner, a supervisor, all of those things. The field's going to miss your daily contributions, but there are many of us who carry your wisdom uh, in and around the, the profession. And there are many of your offspring that are going to carry the torch from here. And I'm wondering what you want those offspring uh, to be carrying the torch about. What do you want to see happen in the field of psychology uh, in the next several years? So I, I just love that because I have always felt that I've carried my mentors on my shoulder. And to the extent that Heather or anyone else feels that I'm going to sit on someone else's shoulder, that, that to me is just a, a really supreme compliment. I think we all stand on the shoulders of the people who come came before us. I'm really grateful to my mentors and glad to have had an opportunity to mentor other people. I think if I had to just sum it up, I would say that I think the study and practice of psychology is so relevant about what matters to people and communities and organizations and societies. And there really is no piece of public policy. There's no piece of program to which what we know about how people think, feel, and behave isn't relevant. So if I had to say anyone to anyone, one final advice, it would be don't lose sight of why your work matters and to whom it matters. It's exceedingly important, I think. We don't have to think very hard and long to see what the applications are of our work, even if we're not practitioners, scientists, the application of science is incredibly important. And the problems and the issues that plagued us in the past few years, be it the pandemic, 
pandemic or climate change, human rights, racism, discrimination, truth and reconciliation, wars and conflicts, they are all about people and how people behave. So societies need us. They really depend on, on what we know, on what people think. And we have, we have a responsibility to sign to our clients, to our students, to our colleagues on an individual level. But I really believe we have responsibility to societies. I hope that we keep that in mind. I hope so, too. And uh, I hope that we can help to repair some of the things that are wrong uh, in yeah. our societies today. I mean, and that's kind of the thing, too, right? I mean, this might be the moment where I have never felt so pessimistic about society in general in my entire life, right? I like all the things that you're mentioning, right? A major war breaking out in Europe, I would never have imagined seeing that in my lifetime. A pandemic that's caused so much chaos around the globe, right? This rise in extremism and racism that we see in all this. Are we better off now than we were 50 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago? Are we better off? Well, I'm probably not the expert to answer that question. Yeah. I think that there's more awareness, more is being said. And I, I'd like to hope that maybe to make change, you first have to acknowledge the problem. And we're hearing a lot about the problems and we're sort of laying bare all the things we've done and haven't done or should have done. And I'm going I'm to choose to be hopeful that that awareness is going to lead to change, to positive change. I think we can all choose hope. I, <laughs> I guess I've met a lot of leaders within government. That's really been an honor and special to me. I met a lot of ministers. An interesting story, I actually, when I was a kid, I uh, came to visit Ottawa. I must have been 10. And um, uh, we, we went to Parliament Hill and we actually met the prime minister, who at the time was Pierre Trudeau. And I met him in the House of Commons and he looked me straight in the eye and he asked me how long it took to get to Ottawa from Montreal. And I thought to myself, hmm, he's the Prime Minister of Canada. I think he must know how long it takes to get to Montreal. He's trying to make conversation. That's what he must be trying to do. And I gave him the answer. But fast forward many decades later, almost in the exact same spot, I was doing a lobby with CPA on Parliament Hill. And I met his son when he was prime minister in almost the exact same spot. And we had a very brief, uh, he said hello. And I thought that was very meaningful to me and very interesting that it had happened um, in the very same spot father and son, many, many decades apart. Meeting uh, Andre Picard, Mary Walsh, Governor General David Johnston during an Meow event. These have been many, I've met many senators. These have been really uh, meaningful moments to me to talk to, to folks who've really, uh, you know, in their own ways shaped our country. Um, right. Has really been an honor and a privilege. Uh, on a fun note though, we used to have a foundation. CPA had a foundation. And back when I was the associate executive director, I was the executive director of the foundation. And we would have silent auctions at every convention, which were a tremendous amount of work to organize, but so much fun. So many members really missed uh, the passing of the, the foundation in those auctions because we'd have these lively bin bidding wards over things that most of us wouldn't even buy, but we were, we were doing it because it went to a good cause. And there was a member or two who used to take great pleasure in outbidding me for one thing or another. But um, those, uh, those were really, uh, that was really a fun time for sure. Those are just a few, I guess nothing too, too cataclysmic, but the ones that came to mind. I was realizing a little while ago 
I've met a lot of prime ministers and and governor generals, but never while they were a sitting prime minister or governor general. Right. My first experience with that, I was 10 years old. Also, I was in an airport. My dad said to the guy next to him, oh, hey, you know, like you're just flying regular with the rest of us. And we're sitting in the law. It was John Turner oh. who had been the prime minister, I guess. And mm-hmm knew nothing of this i'm you know such a little kid like okay well this guy with white hair is uh somebody important i guess there's a lot of people who want to talk to him but he was sitting right next to us in the lobby of the the airport ready to go and then same airport many years later my cousin calls me and says hey can i stay over at your place i'm going to be in ottawa i'm flying in from none of it and i need to you know i have a long layover you know can i stay sure i'll come to the airport and pick you up so I'm ready to pick them up. And before we go, oh, I just have to say goodbye to the people I'm traveling with. So we go into a little room that I didn't even know exists, this private secret room in the airport. And there's Mikhail Jean and her husband, John Ralston Saul. Just wow. that's who he's traveling with. That's what this delegation is. And so I spent some time in there talking to them. And the first thing I did was I found the only empty chair in the room to sit down and everyone in the room panicked no 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 apparently it's a decorative like uh you know historic chair of some kind oh dear oh dear it isn't actually for sitting and it's uh you know an heirloom and i could have broken it so yeah. oh that's funny that's funny yeah it's a small country right and so these uh, things happen right because it, it is such a small it is such a small country but um yeah it's been a great privilege i have to say it's been a great privilege well it's been great uh getting to know you these past few years even if it's mostly been via zoom it's true yeah eric you're a treasure to cpa you're a great asset i really have a lot a lot of respect for you and your work i'm i'm grateful we signed on the dotted line to have you come join uh, I appreciate that. And I, <laughs> Jen is also appreciative. She's happy about it. Oh, and I, I love what I'm doing. I, I think it's, uh, I feel like I'm contributing to somehow make a difference. So I, you know, I'm glad I really, you know, I, I, I'm drawing this out, but I'm going to just say this one more thing. It's really important that everybody feels they have initiative and they have autonomy and they have a bus to drive. I think that's always been important to me. It's hard as CEO because the more you delegate, the less intimate detail you have about how things work. You know, when you do it all yourself, you know how it works. And in early days, you do it yourself. But as you mature, you realize you need a really good team and to have a really good team that team needs to feel like they they are trusted and they have autonomy and they have a bus to drive it is a testament to karen's leadership i feel that every one of us at the cpa is now driving our own bus the best leaders make everyone around them better and karen is no exception in all my time working under ceos and executive directors and program directors and station managers and so on i've never worked with anyone who lives this philosophy the way karen does And now that she's moving on, the bus will continue rolling without her. We'll continue moving along under a new CEO. And there will be very few hiccups along the way. We'll miss Karen dearly, but she set us all up for success in her absence. No small feat with the gargantuan amount of work that gets done in our office every day. I want to thank Karen not only for taking the time to reflect upon her career with me today, but for being approachable, compassionate, understanding, and endlessly capable as the leader of this organization. I'd also like to thank you for listening, streaming, and downloading this episode, leaving a review, sharing with others, uh, whatever it is you do. Mindful is written, hosted, published, and scheduled by me, Eric Bowman. 
Jamie Montgomery is our editor and producer, and our theme song is Avenues by David Taylor. 